Reflections of a Newtonian Observer with special guest Mike O'Brien on episode 295 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky. And today we are joined by our longtime observing friend, Mike. Uh, Mike is a longtime uh, friend of ours and fellow observer. And without question, he's probably both the most mentioned observer on the show. Uh, that we haven't had on as a guest yet. And he, uh, we go observing often, brings along his 12-inch Dobsonian. And uh, he has lots of observing experience looking at uh, comets and galaxies over many decades. So welcome to the show, Mike. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for the intro. And I'm glad to be here. So I got to say, I kind of feel like we're breaking down a bit of a third wall here because sort of we started the podcast when the pandemic hit and we were sort of in, in a in a part way making the podcast for you because you were stuck at work and we were stuck at home and and sort of in a way we had you in mind and we were making up we figured if anybody listens to us it would probably just be you <laughs> <laughs> yeah i certainly didn't miss any episodes uh, especially in the first hundred or so anyway but uh I, i've listened to most of the episodes and uh uh, you know, I uh, kind of uh, follow along with uh, some of your, you know, relating the experiences that you had, because, of course, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's really good. Um, I just lost my screen. Okay, so uh, uh, reflectors and uh, a Newtonian you know, I've had all kinds of telescopes and I still have a few different types of telescopes. The only, I think the only scope that I haven't owned is I haven't owned a Maksudov or a Kazagrain. You know, I've looked through lots yeah. of them, mm -hmm. but uh, I started off with a, well, with a, a cheap pair of seven by 50 binoculars when uh, I wanted to see Halley's Comet when it was coming through the sky late in 1985. And uh, so, you know, my interest in astronomy began with, you know, searching for Halley's Comet and comets still hold a special place for me to, uh, you know, as they come up, they're so unpredictable and they're always different and, you know, they have different brightnesses and we've looked at some pretty challenging comets and, uh, you know, it's, it's they, that they're always they're always there. They're just not always readily visible. But there's been some great comets over the years. Yeah, no, for sure. So you must have started observing quite a bit, you know, after seeing Halley's because, uh, like, I I started observing about I guess about a dozen years, maybe ten or twelve years after you. And I always feel like you've got quite a bit more experience than me. So you must have really sort of hit the sky pretty hard once uh, once the bug bit kind of thing. Yeah, I, I did. I, I you know, so I, I had a copy of Terence Dickinson's uh, Night Watch, you know, that I had. I think I got that year, in uh, maybe at Christmas in 1985, or yeah, I think that's right. And then uh, I was out. <clears throat> I was uh, living outside of Winnipeg, and uh, of course, Halley's Comet was disappeared around the end of December and into January. So I was out there trying to see you know, whatever Messier objects I could get, but you know it's minus thirty, and I had a uh, <laughs> I had a six inch uh, reflector on an equatorial mount, and you know you kind of have to contort yourself to look through the eyepiece at some of those objects. So you know that uh, that kind of um, you know 
discipline would, would kind of keep you warm or keep you from freezing to death at least while yeah. you were hunting <laughs> down objects. Yeah. Oh. <clears throat> Excuse me. Do you still have that six inch mic? I do. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When, when was the last time you used it? Uh, I think, I think I tried it out a couple of years ago. I don't know where I brought it. Maybe, uh, I forget, but I, I you know, I, I tried it out to see, and uh, it has one of those uh, slide focusers like, uh, Chris's Comet, uh, Cometron or Comet Catcher. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, but, and it's a Celestron. It's with like, it was, uh, it was sold as a, a Celestron SPC6 had this unique slide focuser. So it's got that single vein holding the secondary and the secondary kind of slides back and forth as you focus. But on the teeth, on that gear, on the outside of the focuser were made of plastic. So some of them have broken and you kind of have to just focus it manually like this by pushing it. And it more or less stays in place because it's, it's kind of a little bit gummy, you know? Mm. But uh, yeah, it still works, and the mirror is still good. And you know, I, I I don't know how many times I've washed the mirror, maybe once or twice. You know, I had it out and cleaned it, but yeah, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with it. It hasn't it hasn't uh, deteriorated, and it's a steel tube. It's a pretty solid telescope, and I I still have the mount. That's what the mount I was using for my uh, my tack until I got that MC two. Is that the Polaris mount? Yes. Yeah. yeah those are great is. mounts. Yeah. Yeah. And I even have, uh, there's even motors on it that I never really used, but I think, you know, I, I probably used them a couple of times just to track whatever I was looking at, but yeah, it is a great mount. It's a great solid, um, mount with counterweights and, and it's got the setting circles on it. Works really good. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So, so yeah, I used that a lot and, uh, you know, I kind of lugged it around the country because I left, uh, Manitoba and late eighties and I used it out in the Okanagan quite a bit when I was, um, living in Penticton, I would go observing. I had a friend who was from Montreal. He lived there and, uh, him and I, he was pretty keen on astronomy too. And, uh, we'd go out to that White Lake observatory desert area you know and uh it was, it was there was no lights out there it was it was pretty good for for observing milky way objects and everything and uh you know i i guess there's been a, a couple of times where you know i uh, put my scopes away for a year or two or three you know doing other things but i've always i haven't uh, gotten rid of anything so my my collection of gear has only grown yeah, I, I can relate a little bit, although I do try to sell stuff here and there, but, uh, you know, it just seems like you're through the years, you kind of add an eyepiece or a new telescope or binoculars and the collection just continues to yeah. grow. Yeah, that's right. I should sell a few things <laughs> that, I, that I don't use. Yeah. So then after but, the, uh, the Celestron, what was the, the next telescope that you started to use or purchase? Uh, I think the next one was the was the twelve inch that Orion XX twelve. Okay. Um, yeah. So um, and and that's just a you know it came comes with 
the IntelliScope, which is a push to uh, thing. But, uh, you know, and I use that and it worked just fine with the encoders, but don't really need it, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm pretty familiar with the star maps and where things are. And as long as you got a decent finder on there, you really don't need to use the push to and and I'm not a I'm not a go to kind of guy. I'm just uh, I want to look at something. I point the scope in that direction, and if I'm having any difficulty finding it, I'll just go over to a star map and take a look at the star map and see the little patterns that uh, are nearby the object that I want to see, and nudge the scope to that location. And uh, not too often I get skunked. It's you know. It's just when you're in a, some longer observing sessions, when you're going for two or three hours, and uh, you know if you get tired, then it becomes harder to find some of those obscure objects. But uh, yeah, it's just time to pack it in and hope for clear skies the next night. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For sure, and and you know some of my memories that I have of us uh, observing, you know, particularly in grasslands, is number one what you just mentioned is. Uh, just your your efficiency at finding objects it always amazes me you're you're so good at just tracking things down um but then also you know at the end of the night when we're starting to get tired uh sometimes it just turns into a nice binocular session and and uh you know some casual conversation which is always great too yeah yeah exactly it's it's nice to you know if the sky is really favorable and yeah it's bitten you know you're you're tired out from you know trying to find paint things in the sky you can just step back and sit down and look up at the the whole sky especially down there because there's so much to see and uh if you want you know binoculars are pretty easy to use while you're sitting especially if uh if you've got some is where you can really you know with that is on the on those cannons you it's like looking through a telescope you know it's, it's like a it's almost as rock steady if you hold the binocular steady it's like looking through a scope on a steady mount yeah so, yeah it's a game changer for sure so what are those binoculars uh exactly mike can you just tell us a little bit about yeah that? those are the canon 15 by 50 is and uh, of course they make some other sizes and uh, i think i even saw some for sale in uh, the local drugstore here that are the 10, um, 10 by 30, I think they were. Mm-hmm. And, and, they're, and they're expensive, but uh, the, anything but the 15 by 50s and maybe the 18 by 50s or the, or the uh, 8 by 42s or whatever they are, 10 by 42s, you know, if you, you have to hold the button on some of those. But on the 15 by 50s, you just, you can click it and it'll stay on for like three minutes and you don't have to hold it. I often just put these uh, binocs on a tripod too, but they're, they're really nice cannon glass, very solidly built. They're a little heavy to be hand holding, but, uh, you know, not extremely heavy. And, uh, but I I often put them on a tripod anyway, if I want to say, look at, uh, moons of jupiter or something like that you know or even m31 and uh yeah the 15 power binoculars you can actually see that saturn has rings and when saturn is tilted fully you can see those little those two little voids of space in between the rings and the planet 
Yeah, they're they're pretty nice, eh? Like uh, just to scan around. Like I remember a couple nights, you know, especially when you first got them, we would just sit back in like reclining lawn chairs and kind of sh- you were nice enough just to share them back and forth and cruising through the summer Milky Way and looking at Scorpius one night. You know, I, I remember I just couldn't believe like the little um, delicate nebulae that we were seeing in and around like uh, Antares and that region. Yeah, they provide a lot of contrast for all those uh, different levels of light that are in the Milky Way, with uh, especially with the dark nebulas really pop out with these if you're in a dark site. Cool. So other than the uh, six-inch, and it's a Celestron, Newtonian, what is it, F5 on the Polaris? Yeah. yeah. And you got the uh, Canon image stabilized 15 by 50s. What yeah. uh, what other uh, equipment? Uh, so I've you- got that Orion 12-inch reflector, which breaks down into a few pieces. So it's, it's really easy to cart around. And um, actually, this is the second one I've owned. Yeah. And uh, so when, um, when Mark was uh, selling his 15 inch and I thought, oh, you know, that'd be a nice step up from the, from the 12. And I decided, well, I'd sell the 12 and get that 15. And, you know, I didn't think it would be like too heavy to cart around and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. it is pretty heavy, you know, like that 15 mm-hmm. is it's an old Tektron. It's like a tank. And uh, of course it breaks down. It's a trust tube job too so i, I yep. still have that and i'm you know I, i'm working on a on a redesign for it and uh uh so uh, so i sold that xx12 uh, after i bought that 15 from mark and um and then i've used it a few times it worked worked pretty good and i remember mark warning me not to screw around with the coll- collimation but of course <laughs> I don't, I never listened <laughs> because it's pretty coarse, you know, to try to collimate that thing. Yeah. And, uh, and with a, with a Newtonian reflector, especially a truss job, you know, uh, you have to, you know, check the collimation every time you set it up. And it always requires at least some minor adjustment, not usually any major adjustment, but you'd have to do some minor adjustment just to, just to make sure you get nice round stars. And, uh, you know, so I can, we can, we can kind of go off on a tangent on collimation and get back to, to, uh, the different scopes, but for, for collimation, you know, uh, there's, there's all kinds of tools that are sold for collimating a Newtonian and some of them are quite, you know, uh, in depth talking about offsets and they even have like two, two targets that you want to get your laser lined up to, but. And then there's so, the very, so, so Mike, real yeah. quick, let's just, cause we have a, all level of listeners. Um, can you just describe to us what the collimation is first and then, uh, then let's get into it. Sure. Yeah. So a Newtonian reflector, Dobsonian, Newtonian, whatever you want to call it, they, they all work kind of the same. They have a primary mirror that works as a lens it's a concave mirror sits in the bottom of the telescope and you know they can be anywhere from you know four inches up to 40 inches you know but the the um, regular ones are anywhere from say six to 20 or larger and uh, they have you know certain focal length so um, the um, typical typically they're around f5 or give or take 
which makes the uh, focus point, you know, somewhere about two or three feet to the, from the mirror to the eyepiece to make, to get a focus. And in order to direct the light to your eyepiece, there's a secondary flat that sits right in the center. It's usually in a secondary cage sitting right in the center. It's a flat mirror that's kind of uh, oval shaped. So when it's in line with the primary, it only has a circular uh, center obstruction. So that flat mirror redirects the light that comes into the telescope, bounces off of the primary mirror back to the secondary, focusing the light through the secondary onto towards your eyepiece. <clears throat> and uh, in order for the images to be pleasing to the eye and to get any kind of uh, focus or see the detail uh, adequately, all those surfaces need to be lined up as, as, as straight and as true as possible. And uh, so one of the ways to do this, you could just look through, you know, from the from the open end of your telescope and stand back and see that your secondary is in the center of the uh, primary, you know, apparently. And to, you know, refine that uh, lining up of the optics, you can use a tool, just uh, like a laser collimator, where it's, uh, it directs a laser, you know, from the eyepiece holder, the eyepiece is out. So you put this into the eyepiece holder, you turn it on, uh, a faint red laser light shines onto the secondary, mm -hmm. reflects onto the primary, reflects back from the primary onto the secondary. And if the optics are in line, those, uh, those lines of laser light will be all on the same line. And if it's out, you'll see that the, you can look down at the primary and see if your your dot from the laser light is in the center of the mirror and you can make, uh, you know, some fine adjustments. There's usually three screws on the, on the secondary that you can line that light up to make sure it's right smack in the middle of the secondary. And then once you've done that, you can get, go to the other end of the telescope tube and look back at the little, there's a little reflector, on the um, on the laser tool that shows uh, kind of a, a bullseye pattern on the um, back towards you, so that you're at you're accessing the primary, and you can make some fine adjustments. So all all reflector telescopes have these adjustment knobs on the primary. Usually, there's three, and you make some fine adjustments to get that target centered in the eyepiece. And then you just go back and check. And if there's any slight adjustment because of an adjustment you made on the primary that made the secondary move a little bit, you can just keep fine tuning that. Usually that whole process after you've set up your telescope takes less than five minutes, you know? So it, it's, not a, it's not a long, complicated process. You just get the mirrors lined up. Once that's done, you turn off your, your laser collimator, you pull it out of the tube, you put an eyepiece in, you point it at a, in the brightest star or a bright star in the sky, and you can do a star test and 
see if your uh, your uh, star you know keeps in a circular shape in and out of focus. Do you ever have to tweak it, like when you do that, do you, or are you pretty accurate once you do the laser alignment? Yeah, after after the laser alignment is verified to be lined up, um, no, I, I I haven't had to go back, and I think that you know that may occur if if the scope didn't have you know some um, you know if it wasn't solid enough, you know some some of the cheaper telescopes. You know, you might have to do that because they're not holding collimation well. But for a well-made telescope, after you're doing those laser alignments, they they hold that uh, collimation throughout the observing session. Yeah, one of the things I remember when I had my 12-inch light bridge, uh, the light bridge had three trusses. Your Orion had four. And I felt like that that the mead missing that fourth truss really did impact some of the ability for it to hold collimation throughout the night. And uh, sometimes it frustrate the heck out of me because I would look at my scope and then I'd go look through your scope and basically the same aperture and focal length. But <laughs> at the end of yeah. the night, yours always seemed sharper and it drove me nuts that I, I couldn't maintain the same kind of quality view. It was a very solid, very solid scope. And Uh, Yeah, it's all metal pieces and they they go together. I think, you know, there's there's those, uh, you know, the the hardware is captured and you can tighten them down. Of course, you only want to do them hand tight. You don't want to break anything. But uh, it was very, I don't know, it's a well-designed telescope. And uh, yeah, it stays, stays solid. I think after a longer observing session, where we get a big change in temperature, you may have to check your collimation at some point, you know, just because of the, of the uh, very slight changes in temperature. But usually by that point, you know, uh, you know, we're kind of done and packing up anyway. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's a good solid scope. So yeah. So I, I, I still, I have that one. I, I bought a, a second used one, got a pretty good deal on it because you know the, uh, the the Tektron turned into more of a project. It um, <clears throat> I'll tell you a little bit about that that 15 inch Tektron, which I think they were built in Florida in the, like the early 90s, and uh, you know they're pretty heavy plywood, and it's a you know that that classic design, the uh, the bearings for the scope to rock in the in the rocker box are only about maybe eight or ten inches. Now, the newer or more modern uh, reflector, Newtonian reflector, Dobsonian type telescopes have a much bigger um, uh, bearing on them. And it's usually just kind of like a C-shaped, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be the whole circle. It's just that part that rides on the Teflon. And it's usually like a C-shaped or a crescent moon-shaped bearing or even a D shape, whatever. But um, so those small bearings, you know, is something that I think needs to be redesigned to a larger bearing. And there's a, uh, there's a, uh, what holds the, the primary mirror at the bottom of the, of the telescope box uh, is, you know, it's a sling uh, cell, but the, excuse me, the mirror cell is just, you know, attached directly to the to the base or the bottom, and uh, 
it's it's kind of closed in there and the i think you know it's got some like they're like half inch screws that are your adjustment screws that are you know they're kind of coarse they're it's it's quite hard to get them to move around and and adjust the collimation because of course with that telescope you know the collimation you know it might have been okay like uh like i was advised that just set it up and use it as is but you know of course i would check the collimation and i would find it wasn't quite where i wanted it to be so i would I would want to make an adjustment and I wasn't able to make an adjustment because the, the telescope wouldn't respond well to fine adjustments. It would maybe do some coarse adjustments and then you'd just be, make it, make it worse if anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm, I'm reading uh, uh, Dave Krieg's and Richard Berry's the Dobsonian telescope. And uh, of course in there, there's everything for you know, any kind of maintenance or redesign, or you can build the telescope from scratch reading this book. All I want to do is build myself a mirror cell, take the bottom out of that telescope, put in a stainless steel frame holding the 18-point flotation system for the mirror and be able to make those fine adjustments quickly and easily and effectively when I use that telescope. What about something like, doesn't Astro Systems, one of those companies, don't they make uh, mirror cells or kits? Yeah, like I, that? I, had, I had some communication with a guy in the U.S. who makes mirror cells. And he makes mirror cells for, you know, I think some other manufacturers too. And yeah. uh, he, he didn't have time. He didn't have time to make a mirror cell for me. And even if he did, it would be costing probably close to $1,000 by the time we're done. I think I could make one myself here with uh, using some local resources for uh, probably, I don't know, between 100 and 200 bucks. Yeah, I was just looking. Looks like the full, the yeah, Astro Systems is a company in the States and they make, they, they make full kits. It doesn't show like their mirror cell on this, but you know, I'm guessing it's part of it. It's got to be the full yeah. kit for uh, the full kit for the 15 inch is uh says 1900 american which is uh probably shipped to your door is going to be about three thousand dollars canadian so yeah it yeah. seems like a lot like unless you want it, like that would be good if you wanted to do a total rebuild but if you want to keep much of the parts then uh it's not doesn't look like they have too many options on there i thought they must have cells on here but i'm not seeing them yeah so you know you're looking at a lot for you know rebuilding your telescope when all i really need is to take the bottom of the, out of that scope, put in my own built mirror cell, which isn't going to, I don't expect it's going to cost that much. It's going to, you know, 200 bucks, give or take. And, and the mirror is going to fit in there and it's going to be adjustable. I already changed the secondary on there. There was a very small, I think the secondary on there was like a 1.6 inch secondary, which, you know, uh, was too small, say, to use for uh, two-inch eyepieces, you know, so I, I changed that out. I even have a spare secondary. It's like a 2.1 inch maybe or 2.3 inch, mm. something like that. And uh, so that's that's in place. Um, let's see what else. Oh, yeah, I just want to change the bearings. So, you know, I think I'll probably 
you know, just redesign the base or the bottom of that telescope so that it sits a bit lower. I may have to, uh, you know, get some slightly longer uh, aluminum truss tubes, but, you know, so it's still a work in progress. It's still something I'm, I'm going to do. And, and, you know, when I'm done, that scope will be exactly how I want it. And I will probably have, you know, built half of it. Yeah. You know, I get a good spot. You can keep it. <laughs> you're such a kind person Chris. <laughs> nice i got the standing offer right it's like tyson still yeah. his nine inch refractor i can't yeah. afford to buy it but i can store it for you no cost don't right. worry about it send them out tripod telescope and i'll just take care of it for you so, yeah. You so yeah. yeah so the other scope i have so i have that that six inch that I don't really use anymore, but you know, it could be taken out and kind of rebuilt and I could even put it back onto that uh, Polaris mount because uh, I don't really use that anymore either. And I would hate to sell it because, uh, you know, that's the first scope I had and I used it to, to see Halley's Comet and many other objects. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's good to have. And uh, especially if we go out observing with somebody who say doesn't have a scope, I could yeah. bring that show them how to use it and let yeah. them go to town, you know, like nothing to that. But so I also have a, um, a small refractor, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on the fringe of the refractor group with you guys, with my, with my little, <laughs> You're in the pack of <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's great to have. I mean, I've, uh, I've done some solar observing, just the white light solar observing with the Mylar filter over the objective and, I've, I've done some, uh, you know, uh, sunspot sketches with it, and I've uh, viewed some uh, partial eclipses and uh, the Venus transit. Was it's amazing. a, it's a, it, is it it's an F seventy six? It's a, it's a FS seventy eight. So it's a, uh, it's an apochromatic doublet. So it's a, yeah. it's got that two lens with the, the fluorite coating making it uh, behave like a acromat or apochromat. Yeah. Yeah. The fluorite's the, the front element, I think in those. Right. Nice. And that's a, that's a great little telescope. They're with, heavy uh, though for a 78 millimeter. Um, no, I think it, it, it's not that heavy. It, it, of course there's um there's a, it's a, it's a 630 millimeter focal length. So it's not that big. It, it is a steel tube. It has yeah. a, a fixed, uh, you know, kind of dew shield at the front, mm-hmm. which, which makes it long, you know, so not the greatest for say traveling with perhaps, but, uh, you know, it's fixed and, um, uh, and I, and I have it on a, on an MC O2 mount that, uh, it's just a Altaz mount, um, works really well for that. Um, and oh yeah, and there's a um, there's a, a an extender, a 1.6 extender that I can use on it if I want to get a little more magnification for planetary work that turns it into about a thousand millimeter telescope. Nice. Yeah. Oh, one thing we should mention is that uh, just to skip back to the 15 inch for a sec is that's a, a somewhat famous instrument, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is. Um, so the Mark that we're talking about is Mark Bratton, of course, who, uh, you know, he's 
he's a seasoned observer. Um, you know, he's probably seen more things in the sky than I'll ever see. And he's made some, some sketches. And of course, he's written a great book called uh, The Herschel Objects, and where he's observed all approximately 2,500 Herschel objects. That's a great book. Mm-hmm. And um, he's has a little blurb about each of the objects. Many of them have a little sketch. Some of them have a DSS uh, image, which, uh, and most of those images and sketches in that book, uh, well, not the images, of course, but the sketches he made was using that 15-inch Tektron. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And when he was, I think just when he was finishing that, it was around the time he was finishing it, he, uh, he brought it out. Remember that he brought it out to the Cypress Hills. I think it was the the I think it was just about the first year we went to that star party, or maybe the second. And you mm-hmm. were camped at the end of the field, and then he came and set that scope up and was finishing the sketches for the book. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that now. Yeah, yeah. Remember- that setup. We we spent quite a bit of time looking through his scope that night too. Yeah, and he was he was finishing up. I think he was doing the veil and something else for for that book. It was pretty cool to be able to uh to be there when he was making those observations and then actually you know go out and buy a copy of the book and get him to sign it so uh, yeah yeah pretty neat. yeah yeah so that that scope does have quite a, a pedigree history it just needs to be uh you know modernized a little bit and um, i'm sure it'll have many years of life left in it do you have any other equipment that like we don't know about well i once built a a copy scope out of a copier lens oh really really yeah yeah (laughs) because um i think it was written up in a in a sky and telescope magazine back in uh, maybe the 90s or actually it must have been maybe maybe the 80s because my brother is you know he worked for canon copiers in winnipeg at the time and I asked him if he could get me a, a lens from one of those copy scopes. And I don't even know if they have that. I think more, everything's more or less digital now. Yeah. But back then, and there was all these, you know, copiers that are, were being replaced by more modern equipment. And there was quite a, they were, they were readily available. So, uh, and this, I don't have it anymore. I think I gave it to, to somebody. But uh, it was um, a lens that was maybe, I don't know, two and a half, maybe three inches in diameter. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure there was like six elements in it. And it also had a, a baffle. So there was a little um, dial on one side of it that would open or close the baffle. So, you know, I made sure that the baffle stayed all the way open. Mm-hmm. And I measured the focal length on it. It was 11 inches. And uh, the, um, the instructions to build the scope with it was just using PVC pipe, you know, which of course you could, you know, flat black paint the inside, but I, I never did. I, so the, 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 I had to get a, a cheap diagonal and, uh, you know, some, something to attach to a tripod. And it was great for looking at double stars. It was a really good double star scope. What was the, Weren't they like 43 millimeters or something like that? It was, no, it was like, um, close to three inches. I think it was 2.8 inch. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 So it was like, a you know, 75 or 70 millimeter. 
yeah, it was 70 millimeter. It had 11 inch, which was what, two, 280, yeah, 275. So, so it would give us, I would get about 22 power with, uh, with uh, the eyepiece that I had in there. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I gave that away. I don't have it anymore. Um, and other than that, oh, I, I've got some, some binoculars. I, you know, I'm sure I still have this pair of binoculars that I've had forever. And of course, you know, they were left in a vehicle at one point and, you know, the uh, glue holding the, the, um, the prisms in is kind of sleek down onto the surface. So they don't really work that good, but, you know, still have them. And uh, I think oh, when I was, I was out at the West coast a little while ago and my, my sister found this um, this little handheld uh, telescope, and she gave it to me. <laughs> it's like a one inch or something, a little brass one, yeah, a little one brass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it shows you how to use it, and the optics are pretty good on it. But of course, it has no way to, to mount it. Maybe you could use it for a finder, but it doesn't have a very wide field of view. So, and then I've got, of course, at work I use, you know optical aid to look at some of the defects in the in the grains too so there's oh yeah 10 powers and five powers and 30 power little other optics we use we use stereoscopes for the stereo microscopes in the past to look at some things yeah yeah cool so just to kind of move along to uh something shane raised earlier like he was talking about you know, your ability to, to really find stuff, um, in the night sky. And one of the things that, uh, that I think separates you a little bit from, from many of the other observers that, that I've observed with is, uh, sort of how much you study and prepare for a session, um, kind of surprised me. Like I've always done some preparation, but when we're at grasslands, just kind of paint the picture for people, uh, Michael bring his trailer down and, uh, you know, it's like a big camping trailer and, uh, I'll hop in there and it's kind of like walking into, uh, maybe a not so mini astronomical library and you'll have uh, lots of books and charts and all kinds of stuff spread out. So, and, and like, I'll hop in there at 10 o'clock in the morning and you're going over this stuff. Can you just sort of explain what you're doing and your preparation process for like the upcoming nights? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know, you know, I, I want to get uh, oriented. If, if you just have one star map, okay, and you're looking at this star map and you're saying, well, I, I want to look at this object or that object and that constellation, and you got this one star map that you're using, um, I, I, for me anyway, I find it difficult just to have one. If I, you know, if you have, say, two or three different maps, and of course they're a different scale, and some of these star maps actually show, you know, larger sections of the sky or smaller sections of the sky. And uh, so you can almost orient yourself. And, you know, these maps or even these star patterns, even just after looking at them in the afternoon, you know, kind of uh, imprint on your mind. So when you're out under the telescope, you can almost recall some of the uh, some of the orientation of where these objects are, because you know, finding those objects is often just, um, you know, kind of triangulating in on into the star pattern that you recall 
from looking at the maps or, of course, from observing that part of the sky previously. And uh, so you can, you can refine, you know, where that object is in relation to these, these uh, signposts or these markers or the, the brighter stars that are, you know, visible naked eye. And then when you can have a look through a, a finder and you see a few more stars and it just helps you to like, you know, one of the things I like to, I like to find when it's up in the sky is that uh, galaxy uh, NGC 7331. It's called the, the Deerlick Cluster and it's up there way up high in, in Pegasus. And sometimes it's hard to find. And, um, but, you know, with, uh, if, if I have difficulty, because of course the constellations are oriented a little differently depending on where they are in the sky, what time of the night it is. So it can, sometimes it's easy and sometimes it uh, presents a challenge but if it's up I want to have a look at it and then I want to just nudge the scope over a little bit and capture what I can see in Stefan's quintet which is probably only you know a degree or so away so uh, yeah just uh, having uh, many different resources and I'll use one of the one of the star maps I use the most is just the um, uh, Tyrian double star atlas which is uh, you know my the copy i have is well used and it's been out in all kinds of weather and then of course there's the uh, uranometria 2000 which you know has uh, a few more stars in it you know some goes down to a little bit deeper magnitude and i use that for reference quite a bit and um and then of course the pocket sky, sky atlas and uh uh, even uh, the um, the Sky Atlas 2000, you know, with the white stars on the black background. So, yeah, I find with the, the more star maps you have, the easier time you're going to have out under the stars. And uh, sometimes, you know, if you're looking for some real challenge object, you need those star maps with a with a red light so you can kind of refer to them as your if you're struggling to find find it but uh usually you know you can just uh build up that uh, information database in your mind in the daytime and spend most of your time in the night just looking through the telescope yeah that's great advice because one of the things that i often think about when we are observing is just how finite our time is under these you know dark skies when you factor in how often new moons are and then weather and our just our you know your your personal life and availability to to do some of that stuff uh, i always try to be as efficient as i can when i'm in the grasslands or or under a dark sky just to you know see as much as i can so um you know daytime prep like that certainly helps yeah, that's for sure. And, and of course, in the summer, the nights are pretty short too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's not nearly as much time as we have right now. So uh, I think you know one of my one of my favorite things to look at is galaxies, which is why I have you know a larger scope. Of course, you can see many of the Messier objects that you know list of 110 objects that includes you know, the brightest, some of the brightest galaxies with any, any size scope, but, uh, you know, to, <clears throat> you know, to 
get a good view of the those galaxies and of course they all seem to have like um different uh, shapes and uh you know some different details that are visible in some of them spirals and um whatever but so that's one of the reasons that i i like to have a larger aperture uh, newtonian type of telescope is because i enjoy looking at galaxies and i'll, I'll go back to them like i said I'll, I'll i'll hunt down those galaxies that i've seen before just because you know they they're kind of becoming uh familiar and uh i don't know of course every night is different you know and uh, quality of seeing and and clarity and transparency in the sky so sometimes you know you can see quite a lot more detail in a certain galaxy than you would have previously or you know and you may never get a a view like that of that again uh, i remember we were out at the at those dirt hills mm-hmm. and the, and the galaxy that uh, it, like I don't think we've ever seen a night quite that clear mm-hmm. before or since. And uh, we were looking at uh, M51 that yeah. night. Yeah, I remember that so clearly. <laughs> that, and, you know, the detail that you could see in M51 with its little satellite galaxy mm-hmm. at 5195 next to it. Apparently that galaxy is way in the background and they're not actually connected by any little bridge of galactic material. But anyway, they look that way. And of course, in M51 itself, there's quite a lot of details to see in that face-on spiral with the feathery stuff coming off of one of those spiral arms that was you know, captured by Lord Rossi there a couple of hundred years ago in a, in a sketch that he made of that object yeah i i remember that night being easily uh like the most pronounced galaxy spiral arms that i've ever seen visually through a telescope and uh you know to be quite frank i've been sort of chasing that view ever since <laughs> like you said yeah. i think that was just such a special night and we were so fortunate to be able to be out there and uh wow i'll uh, i will never forget that view because like you say mike it was just so much detail within the galaxy that uh you're used to seeing certainly in photographs but i've never seen visually it was just stunning yeah it was it was quite amazing to see that visually and uh yeah i mean you know the all the elements to make a a great clear sky for observing were there and we were out in the dark it was it was a pretty dark place we were far away from any any light pollution at that place yeah yeah it was good and i did we did a podcast on that oh yeah Uh, that uh, was during the first the first podcast that we did way back like 10 years ago (laughs) oh that's right yeah (laughs) As as you guys were talking i was sitting here i was like I feel like we talked about this before, <laughs> but it was a long time ago, but I, I remember that night so clearly as well. Like when I was sort of jotting some notes down for this as well. And I, I think we looked at M101 as, I think we looked at M101 too that night, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know. I've looked at M101 many, 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 many times. That's one of my favorite galaxies too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I, usually up, placed up pretty, pretty high in the summer and there's a few little satellite galaxies around it. Yeah. Yeah, I remember remember looking at uh, 
that M51 and M101 and just just seeing like those those almost look like uh, cumulus clouds like that are sort of swirling you know uh you know around that galactic core of those galaxies uh yeah those are pretty phenomenal right and you know you can see them with a three or four or five inch scope but they're just so much better with uh, mm-hmm. the 12 or larger yeah, the thing with a twelve, the thing with a twelve-inch telescope, a twelve-inch reflector, is it's big enough to bring those things in, so you can see a little more detail in them. And the scope isn't cumbersome, so cumbersome that it, you know, you can't haul it out and set it up in, you know, ten or fifteen minutes, and be observing, and you know, take down time is, you know, not much more or less. And but with the larger telescopes. You need a, you know, a, a real good uh, method, or you know, a kind of a permanent site, or um, you know, or or it's just for a um, a star party or something where you set it up for a few days and put a cover on it when you in daytime. But a twelve inch, I think, is you know the limit for say quick portability. That's. That's good. That's that's a good place, I think, for us to start concluding because we've got. I think by by my count, I know since the first of December, we have at the very least three or maybe four listeners who have just bought twelve inch reflectors, and uh, and so I think it's uh, that, that's some pretty good advice uh, there that they've they've made the right decision by going to some good size aperture. Exactly. Because I think that they want to see these faint objects and they want to see what they can't see in those faint objects. And with a 12 inch, yeah, that, that's a, that's a lifetime telescope. What, what should be the first thing they do? Um, when either, I think one person said their scope just arrived day before yesterday. I think they got an aperture D 12. I know, um, another, uh, another listener received their, I think it's a Skywatcher. 12 inch what, what's the first thing these these folks should do with their uh with their 12 inches once once they get them in hand is there like a accessory they should buy or or something they should do with them and we'll get them started and then we'll yeah them. yeah uh well they should have at least one or two really high quality eyepieces you know one good wide angle eyepiece and one you know say you know good medium or high power eyepiece <laughs> Definitely. That's, I think, you know, you got this great telescope and sometimes they don't come with the greatest eyepieces. So you should invest in, in some pretty decent eyepieces and I don't know, they, they, they can, they can be expensive, but you know, they don't have to be, uh, you know, beyond your, your pocketbook. But uh, if you have a, if you have a good scope like that, a couple of good eyepieces, uh, and uh, usually those scopes come, they require some assembly. So I, I'd recommend, you know, following those instructions that come with the telescope very closely because that first time you put it together is going to kind of set, uh, set the tone for, you know, how that scope operates when you're out in the field and, you know, you won't ever have to do it again kind of thing. Some of those, some of those parts of it. So just take the time to put it together properly. Uh, and, for a 12-inch reflector, especially a truss telescope, make sure you get a, a decent um, laser collimator. Like I said, there's a whole range. Stay away from the cheapest ones. 
find something that uh, you know you've uh, read some reviews on that it uh, works consistently and accurately and uh, you know so yeah you're gonna you're gonna make sure you have uh, that as a tool and um, and of course a good star map <laughs> or three yes <laughs> <laughs> good stuff all right well uh do you have anything else you want to share with the listeners before we uh, pack this uh, pack this episode up, Mike? Uh, I don't know. I mean, um, I think uh, you know. Sometimes, <clears throat> you know, if you have a scope and you, you're interested in astronomy and you want to get out and see what you can see in the sky, it's something that you can do just by yourself. You know, quite a lot, but. It's uh, it's much more fun to find somebody with a common interest and kind of go out there and do it together, and that can often learn from each other. So you know, good to good to, good idea to try to find somebody to observe with. But uh, uh, I, I think you do also have to be intentional, and uh, uh, you know, if you if you got a, a piece of equipment, you got to take advantage of those opportunities to get out and use it. So don't be afraid to go out in the dark, and don't be put off by the the coyotes. <laughs> sound advice <laughs> how about you, you? do you have anything to uh to add to this uh, episode no just thanks mike it's always uh, great talking to you and uh look forward to some observing here uh hopefully in the near term but also once things warm up and we're able to get out under some really dark skies yeah i'm looking forward to our, our next session out in grasslands Sounds good. And uh, you got you guys should know somebody plowed me out at the cottage. One of my neighbors, I think, plowed me out. And wow. uh, yeah, we can park cars out there and set up on the uh, on the road whenever we get some some clear skies and and weather that's warmer than minus thirty. So yeah, we can always uh, always do that as well. So thanks so much for joining us today, Mike. Uh, do do really appreciate it. Um, sort of in a way, it feels long overdue, but. Uh, but again, like uh, in the very start, uh, we were making the podcast in a way for you. So it seemed weird to have you on talking to yourself. So well, I've gained a lot from listening to your podcast too. So thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. All right. Uh, and thanks to our listeners for listening. And uh, if you're a listener and enjoyed the podcast, we would sure appreciate you doing us the favor of leaving us a five-star review and saying something positive. Uh, about the show and uh, that way you will help other observers find actual astronomy in 2023 we're always excited and happy to get listener observing reports to actualastronomy at gmail.com thanks for listening everybody thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show if you are interested in more information would like to contact us or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>